Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Just The Facts, the podcast that features candid conversations with your favourite actors and filmmakers and welcome to episode 22. How are you? Happy Tuesday, if indeed you are listening to this on the morning of its release. If not, happy whatever day. Hope you're good, whatever you're up to. Whatever your plans are, thank you for making this show part of your day. I'm excited. I'm excited about episode 22, as today I have a phenomenal filmmaker joining me in the human form of the brilliant Mr. Edgar Wright to talk about Last Night in Soho. And there is plenty of talk about his wonderful new movie, which comes out in cinemas this Friday, the 29th of October. And it's just amazing. It's a beautiful, delirious fever dream of a movie and one of those films that absolutely belongs on the big screen i loved it go out and see it i mean it's up to you i'm not telling you to but that's my recommendation my recommendation is to get to the cinema and see it but as always on this show there is a lot of other chat as well we talk about ghosts uh, both metaphorical and literal and we discuss what a crazy undertaking it was for edgar filming this movie on the actual streets of soho also if you're familiar with edgar and his work you already know that he is someone who knows a lot about cinema and now you can add to that he knows a lot about soho 
I mean, we do talk a lot about Soho on the show anyway, because for a lot of our British guests, both actors and filmmakers alike, Soho has been a huge part of their lives. It's the heart of the entertainment industry, whether it's auditions, post-production. I mean, we had Paul Feig on the other week, actually from his Soho edit suite, putting the finishing touches to his new film. But today is different because if you've never visited Soho, or even if you have, you are about to get a fascinating, vivid, and at times eye-opening tour of this famous square mile of the capital and its colourful and obviously at times sordid history. That's all coming up. That is all coming up in our conversation today and a lot more in between. Uh, that'll be here in like 30 seconds time. Uh, very quickly, though, a little bit of housekeeping before we get into the conversation. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JTFpod, where you can get in touch with us and find out all the latest details on the show and our upcoming guests. Also, uh, do please take a moment to visit our rather special new website that my producer Grant built for us. Thank you, Grant. Uh, there you can sign up to our newsletter and become part of our ever-growing Just The Facts community. That's jtfpod.com. If you do like the show, please just take a moment to give us a little rating and review. It really is a massive help on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And tell your friends about us. Right, let's do this, shall we? Yes, I think we shall. Because welcome to Just The Facts, the magnificently talented filmmaker, it's Edgar Wright. Edgar, mate, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Nice to see you. It's really, really, really nice to see you. So um, lovely room you're in, by the way. It's very, uh, very chic. I'm in, I'm, well, probably appropriately for this movie, I'm in the Soho Hotel. <laughs> and if it looks a bit like a strange angle that you're seeing on the Zoom, this will mean nothing to people listening, but I'm sitting on the floor because the floor is, these coffee tables are sort of very low. So I sort of like to sit on the floor cross-legged. Uh-huh. This You can cut this bit out. This means nothing to people just listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nice. I like it. It feels like a slightly more bohemian kind of interview. It's lovely. You, you're on the floor. Hey, um, let's start with congratulations on Last Night in Soho. What an incredible film, mate. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's it's something that I've... <laughs> It feels weird to like um it to be finally coming out because I feel a little bit like it's like a, a kid leaving home or something. I don't know quite what I'm gonna do with myself when it's it's out there because I've sort of been thinking about it for so long. Um, even you know, like before we even started shooting, I've been thinking about it for a decade. And then, you know, within shooting, then also we had uh, you know, like a a lockdown and a hiatus. And so it's that thing where it wasn't really, it wasn't finished until Christmas last year. And then we pushed the release so it could come out in cinemas and also, also come out in the autumn. I kind of felt like it was like a, a film that needs to come out when the nights are getting colder. <laughs> um, and so now it's finally sort of coming out and I sort of, I, I won't quite know what to do with myself. I, I don't really want to say goodbye to the story or the, you know, anything about it. It's weird. Does it feel considerably different to previous releases? No, I guess because not just of the delay in bringing it out and all the time that you've had to sort of think about it, but also because it is, you know, Soho's your home. You live five minutes away. I know. I think that's part of the problem <laughs> is that I'm still haunted by it because I see the locations from the film every day. Like 
it's so that's kind of strange. And so it's something where I, you, I, I guess there's a point where I think with a lot of films is that f- feeling that like you have to make a film because it's like haunting you at a certain point where you can't stop thinking about it. Many of the films I've done, it's got to that point where you have to try and make the movie so you'll stop thinking about it. It certainly would have been the case with Sean and Hot Fuzz and Baby Driver and this is like you you have you have to try and make the movie just so you can get it out of your head. Mm. And I think probably because because it's like I've you know like um made a movie where I sort of like you know I mean what do they say don't shit where you eat where like um I guess I've made a movie on my own doorstep in a sense and so it's like I can't I can't escape it even though normally it would be a, a process of letting it out into the world and never having to think about it again but I can't so. That's, it will haunt me forever, I guess. I mean, that's interesting because I, I emailed you straight out of the um, the screening because I came out of Universal and I, I walked straight into Soho. And I, <laughs> I found myself on Carlisle Street um, opposite the Toucan Pub, a pub I've walked past a hundred times. And it suddenly felt completely different. It felt like I was looking at a piece of film history. Do you get the same vibe when you walk past the Toucan Pub now? Are you like, there are stories, there are stories in those walls that I have created? Yeah, I mean, I I think I do think about it a lot in terms of I I do I mean I think this is the same with Christy Wilson Cairns who I wrote the screenplay with, and one of the reasons we paired up on it is I think we we people there are people who walk around a big city. You could say this about any city, and not just London and not just Soho, and walk around the city and and never think about the past. To me, London is one of those places, and Soho as a square mile is particularly like this that it's impossible for me to walk around without thinking about what it was because the buildings are hundreds of years old. The ground floors change, but once you look above the ground floor, like the buildings are the same. And, you know, I think about a lot about what the walls have seen. And if I'm in one of those places, I think it's probably the thing that started me thinking about this film is just, you know, sitting in, offices or sitting in like a hotel room or like a flat or somewhere in central London or even in Soho itself and starting to wonder what used to be in this building and who used to live there. And there are things that are put forward in the film, the idea of what ghosts are um, that, you know, I, I believe this and that maybe it's going growing up with a mum who is very sort of supernaturally switched on, shall we say, I mean, my mum is in some ways is very similar to Eloise is that she is somebody who sort of very vividly feels presences and sometimes is even, you know, seen kind of ghosts essentially. Um, And when I was growing up, that would be stories that I'd hear from my mum. I mean, these are things that like, sometimes they're things that happened to her when she was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're things that had happened to her that day. I think both me and my brother were, but we're never skeptical about that. But it was it was always when people tell you those things very matter of factly, then it's it's very sort of compelling in a way. And I guess part of part of it being like a horror fan growing up, there was a part of me that was envious of her for having seen a ghost and I hadn't seen one. So still to this day, I haven't seen a ghost, but I I would still like to. So if any are listening, I'm, I have to be visited. <laughs> so, so, wait, do you believe in do you believe in ghosts? Then I mean, not just in the sort I, of I do. I do. I mean, I do in the sense of like, there's a line in the movie where like um, Thomas and Mackenzie ask Diana Rigg if somebody has died in her room, and she replies, 
this is London. Someone's died in every room and every building in this whole city and every street corner too. I believe that. And moreover, I mean, there's two theories about ghosts. One would be like a ghost souls that are left on earth in purgatory with unfinished business. They can't go to heaven or hell. So they're forced to remain on earth with this unfinished business. Or is it just the psychic residue left behind by an event? So do you believe that if a murder had happened in a room, that anything from that was left behind other than the physical, like, you know, sort of effects of it? Like, I mean, I, I, I believe that. And I think sort of a lot of people have that feeling of they come into a room and it's like there's something about this place that's, you know, spooking me out. And then they discover that something actually happened there, you know? And so did that, did that weird feeling, I say weird feeling, that's an interesting feeling. Did that feeling inform where you picked to set some of the key scenes in the movie? Like, for example, take the Toucan pub that we were just talking about. Obviously, I, I think that place had its own crazy history in the 60s. Um, it does. Like, it was owned by... Um, oh, I've got to remember the name of the club. It had a great name. It's kind of something like Knuckles Club or yes, something. Yes, it, yeah, it was Knuckles, yeah, right? It was, yeah, and it, it was, was owned yeah. by the drummer from the Pretty Things. If I've got the musician, I know it's the Pretty Things. If it's not the drummer, I apologize. But it does say in their history that Jimi Hendrix played there once. And when you go into the basement of the Toucan and you hear that Jimi Hendrix played there, you're thinking, where there's literally <laughs> like room for about twelve people standing in that place. If if he did play there. He if he had a four piece band, including him, there must have been like eight other people <laughs> in the room, which had been a very exclusive gig. But yes, no, it does. It, that place really does have its history. And, and and yeah, it did sort of in terms of inform the streets, because, you know, like Soho, even Soho has become obviously very gentrified in the last like 25 years. I've lived in London for 27 years when I first moved to London the red light district was so much bigger and so much more prevalent and like you know would be whole streets of it would be like streets which now are kind of very um upmarket like great windmill street mm. which is full of like boutiques and uh nice restaurants was all kind of like clip joints and kind of um you know sort of peep shows and and it's very strange to me. One of the things that you always used to really disturb me about Great Wimble Street, and weirdly, the one thing that's remained is, is, is the kind of the more innocent part of it. But there's a primary school in the middle of that street. <laughs> and you would very strangely like walk down that street and there would be ladies outside the clip joints. And it haunts me to this day, like a lady that would say, sexy bed show, sir. Sexy bed show, sexy bed show, sir. And she was next door to a primary school and you could hear the kids on break playing. And I was just thinking, these are the things that kind of, you can see where the film is coming from now. It's like, they would be the things that would really, I'd find, does anybody else find this as weird as me that you can hear children playing next to like a, like a clip joint is very odd to me. That's sort of gone away, but then it also hasn't. That's the thing about Soho is that I feel like the later at night it gets, the more the kind of the Soho of old starts to kind of rise up. Mm. And it's a very sort of profound energy change. If you spend a lot of time in the area and it feels like the square mile of Soho is slightly like a law unto itself. And it feels one of those places, which why it's featured in literature and film for like hundreds of years 
is because it feels at that place where it's it's very easy to get lost, even in just this square mile, and very easy to make a bad decision. And I think in a way, like the film is sort of haunted by tragic tales of, you know, showbiz and careers cut short or people that didn't even make it at all. And, and those are things that I think about a lot. And I, I know sort of Christy felt the same way is that, you know, you hear stories about kind of, um, you know, terrible like left turns in people's lives and careers. And, um, you know, it, the, the, the shadows of the past like loom large. And I find it sort of difficult to forget, you know. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Obviously, Soho's changed, and this 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 reference is on the cusp of Soho. But um, I remember watching American Wheel in London, and there's the the uh, the the adult cinema, let's call it, uh, on, in Piccadilly Circus. And I genuinely, I watched that, and I was like, that that can't have been there. That would have never been there in the '80s. And I went digging around; it was really there, like just in the in the center of Touristville in London. You've got you know a, a dirty flicks place. Well, now it's a, I think it's now, there was a gap. It changed into a gap for a while. Yes. (laughs) But it was actually at the time of filming. It's funny because I've asked John Landon says myself, because I remember when I first came to London, not when I first came to London, when I came to London on a school trip, when I was about 15, and we had like a free period as going run around London. And me and my friend Graham, we went straight to Piccadilly Circus, A, to sort of go to Tower Records, which was there at the time, and B, see if we could find the porn cinema from American Wealth in London. And it wasn't there anymore. But I think when they shot the movie, there was a cinema there. But at that point, when they shot the movie in 1981, uh, it was a Disney cartoons cinema. (laughs) They used to have those cinemas that would just kind of run cartoons 24 hours, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I remember during, uh, during lockdown, those fantastic photos that you were posting of these almost deserted streets around Soho. And I was like, did you do that for fun or was that part of the process? Cause we, I mean, lockdown was different for everyone. Was it part of a, a kind of sanity maintaining process sort of going out and taking those pictures around Soho? Well, it was very, um, it was very sad. Like at the start of lockdown, when we had to go on hiatus. We had to stop what we were doing. We couldn't even edit the film because we actually, at the point when lockdown, the first lockdown happened, we were about to do some additional filming with, with all the cast. And it was, it was literally about to happen the next week. And I, I had this feeling, even as we were prepping it, that it wasn't going to happen because, you know, you were reading the news and seeing what was coming. As soon as I think everybody in the film industry started to really think, oh shit, is when No Time to Die moved. (laughs) I feel that's when everybody in the film industry suddenly took it really seriously thinking, wait, what do they know that we don't? This is obviously (laughs) bad news. And we um, we had to stop, uh, we had to go on hiatus and we didn't really know when we were going to be back or whether we were even going to be able to shoot the stuff that we did, which we, we eventually did later in that summer. And I guess during that period, I was walking around a lot in the centre of London and I couldn't stop taking photos of empty Soho. And then eventually, and this isn't a spoiler, but in the end credits of the movie, you do see some shots of empty Soho, which we shot one night. I was so sort of compelled, exactly those photos that you're talking about. I called my producer and I said, hey, we have to shoot lockdown Soho because when is it ever going to look like this ever again? It's so, you know, because Soho is so 24 hours it's the only part of London that 
feels like there's always somewhere that's open. It's the one place that's like genuinely 24 seven, which make when we were shooting the movie was made it very complicated to do, um, you know, shooting the actual scenes in Soho for real, both the 60s stuff and the modern day stuff. And now it's like empty, completely empty of cars and pedestrians. There's nobody on the streets. So one night, I think it was like July 2020, we um, with the city of Westminster's permission, <laughs> we, w- we went out. We weren't allowed to put a tripod down. We weren't allowed to put track down. But they said, as long as you're not stopping like cars or pedestrians, you can shoot wherever you want. So we actually went out with a steady cam, and we just we, and we just had one lens. We didn't change the lens, and it was just a small crew of about ten people. I think I was the AD as well. We couldn't, we didn't have an AD. So I was, we just walked around and just took shots of Soho on the Steadicam. And then we, and so the, the shots that are in the end credits of the movie, I guess it's basically like a little epilogue of like lockdown Soho and, and just chronicling all those empty streets. And also I think originally before even the lockdown thing, I wanted to do something where I shot every alley in Soho. Because <laughs> if you notice so well, it's like the, the alleys are, are sometimes as important as the main roads, you know. And certainly back in the 60s, when you see shots of those alleys back then, when like the kind of the the nightclub scene, both above board and below board, was much, much bigger. All of those alleys were kind of, you know, places to go and <laughs> make some bad decisions i mean I, I you mentioned it i just i just don't understand how you manage to shoot in soho because i like you i spend a lot of time in soho and and it's it's never not busy like it's it just it just isn't and indeed like sort of the the, the period that you think oh it's going to get quieter at like three in the morning is the period where a, a whole different soho wakes up how how scared were you at the prospect of actually going, we're going to do this for real in Soho? Well, it's scared, but also it was, it was the thing that was driving me to do it. Like if we'd have had to fake it somewhere else, I probably wouldn't have made the movie. It was, it was sort of the, the first thing that when we talked about making it, probably the first meeting that we had with me and Marcus Rowland, my production designer was with Camilla Stevenson, the location manager, just to talk the, about the practicality of doing it. Cause what I didn't want to do is fake it elsewhere. And, you know, sometimes, especially period movies, if they're doing like period London, they'll shoot somewhere else. Like films like Judy or legend might shoot in East London or shoot somewhere else. Or sometimes people shoot in Manchester or Liverpool to, to, for period London. Mm. But here we wanted to grab the ball by the horns and not only shoot the modern day scenes in Soho itself, but the 60s stuff as well, which we did. And so all of the all of the locations in the movie are where they say they are. Like, you know, Eloise lives first in Halls of Residence in Fitzrovia, then she moves to a bedsit in Fitzrovia, and then where she works and where all the 60s stuff happens is in Soho in like Old Compton Street, Dean Street, Frist Street, Greek Street, the Toucan, Soho Square, mm-hmm. Piccadilly Circus. Like we just shot everything as it was. And that was challenging for the modern day stuff because you just, you sort of just have to grab the ball by the horns and it it becomes like a war of attrition at some point. It's the only, you just have to kind of stake out where you're going to shoot. <laughs> and you kind of got this small army of... Uh, PAs and location assistants who were the people working the hardest on those days, <laughs> just asking people politely to not walk through shop. And 
and then you know working with the city of Westminster to kind of do some road closures on certain days but those things have to be done months in advance like the shot where Thomas and Mackenzie and when she first goes into the 60s and walks across the Haymarket mm. um, into the Café de Paris we use the Empire uh, on Haymarket as a double the real Café de Paris is just around the corner but actually not quite as nice a street to shoot in so we shot on the Haymarket instead but that had to be uh, run by we had to give the city of Westminster five months notice. Wow. So that is why when people say, why don't people, more people shoot in Soho is that, you know, we were lucky that we had a long pre-production to, to do those things. Even like the other streets, like in Soho is like three months notice. So that's the challenging part is then you're locked into those days. And like, if you know, so you don't have a lot of flexibility. The city of Westminster were really helpful to us and let us shoot, but we had to shoot those scenes on those dates, and there's no way around it, you know. So, I mean, I'm very proud of the location work in the movie because it is ambitious, and I think, especially if you know London and that area, sometimes people are watching saying, "Wait, how did you? How mm. did you guys do that?" Hundred like, percent. Well, we just we just did it. We shot. I mean, the, I think the most impressive shot. Uh, for people who know London is the shot it's in the second dream sequence when Matt Smith and Annie Taylor joy are driving up Frist street and they turn a corner into Bateman street and they park in Greek street all in one shot. And all of the ground floor is all dressed into the sixties, which Marcus Rowland, our production designer did and, you know, period extras and cars, but just out of frame is the modern world. And there's a scene when like, when, Anya and Matt leave this nightclub and they're sort of talking in the street and they're sort of like romantic, you know, romantically walking Mm -hmm. down the street. Like he twirls her around and they're talking outside this clothes shop and they're doing all their dialogue and they're such pros because like out of the corner of it, it's like now three in the morning, I think maybe on even on a Friday, Thursday or something. And just out of frame is like a fight happening with some (laughs) ejected from a nightclub and a bouncer. And you know, fair play to Anya and Matt. They just kept on acting. They weren't going to let the modern world dissuade them. I mean, we had similar things even when we shot outside nightclubs. There's a scene outside a nightclub in Vauxhall where I think we were shooting on like a Sunday night. And even on a Sunday night, there were like sort of, there's a scene with like Thomas and McKenzie and Michael Ajeo where they kept on acting even as like drunk people are like walking into shot. And I was I was really impressed by the actors. Just kind of, they felt okay. We're we're just going to do our thing, and we're not going to be bothered by everything else that's going on. I, I was going to say, I mean, four in the morning in Soho, the kind of people who are around who see lights and cameras and film sets don't tend to be the kind of people who just casually walk on by. They're the kind of people who will go, "What's going on here? What's you? What are you doing, mate?" Well, we had. I mean, we had some, you know. Uh, I mean, I have to shout out again, the locations department and security and stuff, because, you know, also there are people who don't want cameras around at all. Mm. And so even that is something where like you're, you're kind of like impinging on what they want to be doing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there were some sort of moments there where like uh, people are, are starting to kind of you know, just alarmed that there are like cameras around, you know, because it's not something that it's not usually on screen that much. But I mean, it was, uh, I mean, one of the other amazing shots, actually, this doesn't seem like an ambitious shot, but it was, is, is whilst we were shooting that stuff with Anya and Matt, 
and doing the 60 stuff, I had like a second unit around the corner and I asked my editor, Paul Matchless, to basically, you know, shoot. I'd run back and forth and he kept shooting shots. As Right at the start of the film, you see Thomasin as Eloise go out with the girls from the London College of Fashion on their first night out. But they go out on a school night and get hammered on a Sunday night <laughs> the day before registration. And you see a shot of them walking down Old Compton Street, which is the main drag in, um, in Soho. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we shot those shots of the girls walking down the middle of Alcom Street on a steady cam hidden within a rickshaw. And basically the rickshaw was pulling ahead of the girls and the girls were just walking down and just walking through Soho. So most people didn't see a film crew. They just saw these, they didn't know that they were actresses. So those shots, which are actually in the trailer, were essentially done with a hidden camera in a rickshaw. And, you know, you have all the signs put up. You probably walked through when you've seen a film location, it has those signs that's like a legal disclaimer saying, you know, if you walk through here, you may be, you know. Also, I don't know if you spotted the other stuff that I think is kind of, ambitious on a location element is there's a whole sequence later where Thomas and Mackenzie is running down Oxford street and across Oxford circus. And, you know, we shot that for real as well. Like, and we have some of our extras in that, but there's a shot when she runs across Oxford circus and, you know, we have a steady cam on Oxford circus and we just like, we're standing one side and it's like, as soon as the green man goes, you run for it, like, <laughs> run past the camera. The truth is, is that also, and you know, this is that, 
Londoners, for the most part, and you can say this about most big cities, they don't really give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Most people are so wrapped up in their own problems and maybe even looking at their smartphones whilst they're walking that they wouldn't have even noticed that a film was shooting. And certainly, did a single Londoner um, stop the clearly distressed Eloise to see if she was okay? Of course not. (laughs) So, So she's running around like having like a sort of, you know, like having a waking nightmare panic attack but not not nobody really sort of said are you okay <laughs> it is quite amazing what you've done for soho though i mean I, I i was watching it and i remember the first time i went to new york i think it was about 2003 and for me the first time i went to new york it was like stepping on to a a film set just one giant film set because i've seen so many films shot there and genuinely for the first time walking around soho after watching this film it suddenly became that kind of magical experience where you feel like you're on just one big film set. Well, I guess it's because it's a neighbourhood where I've spent the most time in London. I mean, even before I sort of moved into central London when I was editing Baby Driver like five years ago and and basically never left. But um, prior to that, I had spent more time in Soho than any like sofa in any flat that I've ever lived in. I mostly lived in North London whilst I've been in living in London for the last 27 years. But because Soho is like a a nightlife area, restaurants, cinemas, theatre, comedy, music, everything, and then also the centre of the film and TV industry. And because I've edited everything I've done right back to Spaced in, in Soho. And so you just end up through that, like seeing it at all hours of the day. And, you know, like you said, a lot of like nighttime walks or sort of, finishing work at like two in the morning and coming out and seeing what Soho is like at two in the morning. <laughs> and uh, I even remember like vividly a, um, when I was editing Spaced, I think it was the second series. So it would have been like late 2000. And there was a point where me and Paul Matchless were editing the series. And I think I went in on the 29th of December to edit Summer Spaced on my own. And I had the keys for the edit suite at Goldcrest, which is on Brewer Street. And I was walking down the middle of Old Compton Street in Soho on December the 29th, completely deserted, snow on the ground, nobody else on the street. This is like 8.30 in the morning, and maybe even on a Sunday or something. And I was walking down the street and I looked up Dean Street and outside a brothel on Dean Street, the one directly opposite the Groucho Club. Maybe we're getting too in now, but... No, I know. Not, I by actually... the way, none of, these, none of these things are tourist recommendations. <laughs> But I walked past and there was a guy standing outside the closed door of this brothel and he was the only other person on the street. He turns around and looks at me and he says, what time do they open? (laughs) 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 Which made me just like, I remember collapsing with laughter because I just, I just love the thought that he, A, that he would just ask a random stranger that or just the idea that I knew. Like, so I, I just thought that was amazing. And so it's like things like that happen in Soho all the time. And it's one of those places that if you're a tourist and you're just walking around going to a restaurant or a bar or like a club, you might not notice those things. But once you stand still for like more than 90 seconds, something will happen and it it might not be a good thing. So it's like it's I mean, it's it's interesting to me. It's like sort of I think that's the thing is that you look back in just in terms of literature, like back to sort of like you know, 
Dylan Thomas and uh, and Oscar Wilde and, mm. and further back is like the stories are just all there. I mean, there's this amazing book, actually, that uh, was written in the 20s that I read when I was like sort of writing this um, by Patrick Hamilton. It's a series of three books called 20,000 Streets Under the Sky. It's really brilliant. And it's it's set in like Fitzrovia and Soho. And there's one chapter of the book which describes a a blackout drunk night in Soho that is so terrifying um, just in terms of like imagining 1920s Lyle Street (laughs) (laughs) and then also just thinking like oh god this is like I feel like I'm getting kind of like just kind of PTSD just reading this kind of chapter but this is a bit but this isn't from now this is from the 20s so you can just see that this area has kind of cast such a thrall over like artists for so many years. And so that was one of the things that I spent, I just wanted to see that on screen and like London obviously appears on screen a lot, but usually it's other areas of London that appear on screen or a big budget movie might have a scene in Trafalgar square where somebody lands a helicopter, or if it's any spy film or superior film, there will be that helicopter shot mm. of London bridge and the, the gherkin yep. at the start of every X-Men movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or the millennium bridge I, 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 will be brought down yep. by the death eaters yep. or, and or Magneto and or somebody else. Um, <laughs> so like, so I just felt like it was like, w- with the exception of like, in the last like 30 years um, or 35 years, maybe like there's only a few sort of like Soho movies, like Mona Lisa was the last big one mm-hmm. with Bob Hoskins. And then Michael Winterbottom did a great film at the start of this century, Wonderland. And then obviously the parts of his Paul Raymond film as well. But Wonderland, I think, is a, a really good record of Soho, but for the most part, most people don't bother because it's difficult, you know. It's, I mean, uh, talking about the history of Soho, you get, like you say, you can get lost in it. It's fascinating. What's quite fascinating is there are certain pubs that both claim the same story. Like I think the the Dog and Duck um, on Bateman Street and the Wheat Sheaf on Rathbone Place both claim to be the pub where George Orwell, after he found out uh, how well 1984 had done, uh, drank a bottle of absinthe and threw up across the bar. Well, weirdly, the pub that is in the movie is also, I think, the Newman Arms gets referenced in 1984. Rather, it was the inspiration for the pub in 1984. But then the Newman Arms, um, again, just around the corner on Rathbone Place, that is in um, Last Night in Soho, um, primarily because like it's a great location. It's around the corner from my... I shouldn't say where I live. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, really? Okay, let me me back up. It's nowhere near where I live. Um, But it is in the opening sequence of Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Mm. The opening sequence of Michael Powell's Peeping Tom is the Newman Arms um, and Newman's Passage. Um, And also the newsagent is in Peeping Tom on the corner of Rathbone Place and Percy Street is in the opening of the movie when Eloise um, hides from a taxi driver Hmm. in a news agent it's that same one and then what's also interesting this will mean something to to brits but not other people but newman's passage also features in the opening titles of minder because it is where the winchester club is in minder for real wow i didn't even know that (laughs) well when you watch the when you watch the end credits of minder there's one shot of dennis waterman and george cole pushing uh, uh, there's a lamppost that's on a like yeah. the piss and they're pretending to hold up the lamppost 
that's supposed to be the exterior of the Winchester Club and it's Newman's Passage. That's fascinating. I mean, in terms of the film itself, there are certain aspects of it that you can certainly describe as a, as a love letter to the 60s, uh, especially uh, the buzz of Soho, the aesthetics and, and the music. When, when did you first, I guess, fall in love or become aware of the 60s or start imagining what this period in history might have been like? It was really, and this is kind of like reflected in the opening scene in the movie, but it was really initially, because I was born in 1974, but my parents' record collection was quite small. They had one record box and all of the records were from the 60s and they seemed to stop buying records in 1970. So it was, I guess it became clear to me later is that my parents stopped buying albums when my older brother was born. <laughs> and they, were no, they didn't seem to collect albums into the 70s, not until me and my brother started, well, they started buying records for us. Mm. But their collection was like from 64 to 70. And, you know, back in those days when pre-internet, way pre-internet, but also even before having a TV in my bedroom, like I would listen to those records because they they didn't anymore. And so, you know, Beatles records and Stones and, you know, Pink Floyd and um, Simon and Garfunkel, like just just a lot of those like albums that I would like obsess about and you sort of would have to back then just kind of like conjure up the decade through what you were listening to and then I think beyond that it's something where obviously the 60s cast such a long shadow in culture in the in the whole of the world not just the UK but like sort of 60s London is something that always people kind of refer back to as like that was the time and that was the place and this was the place kind of in swing in London where like, and Soho specifically was where it was at. Mm. And then what's interesting about that. And then what starts to inform the movie is that, um, you know, it's dangerous to be nostalgic because I would, I would be very nostalgic for a decade that I never lived in. And I would have recurring time travel fantasies about going back to the sixties. And then you have to wonder Am I thinking about going back um, because I can't deal with the present day? And are you thinking about going back? Are you fooling yourself? Everything was great then because that's not true. Is that everything that was bad, everything that's bad now was bad then. Mm. And some things were worse back then. Mm. But obviously, like, there's a tendency from some people to romanticize the past, especially people that weren't there. And when you do talk to people from this, who were around in the sixties, four of them are in this movie, you know, that they're, 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 they obviously have great memories of the time, but they're always tempered with everything else, you know, that everything else that happened. And, and I think they probably much like Eloise in the film, who in a couple of scenes talks with puppy doggish enthusiasm about the sixties to people who were there and, and are met with like a, a flat unromantic response because I feel like I've been that person. Sometimes when you meet like a rock star from the 60s and like if you met like a Beatle or, you know, I mean, I have met a Rolling Stone and it was just embarrassing because <laughs> I found myself just floundering trying to make a conversation. Well, which one did you and, meet? Oh, I met Mick Jagger and it was so embarrassing because I, I had nothing to say. Well, it's that thing. Sometimes when you meet heroes, you have nothing you can't just offer up, oh, I'm a big fan because mm. they've heard everything. And usually you have to kind of think of something more offbeat 
and in, in a way like on this movie you know you don't want to open talking to diana rigg asking her about the avengers mm. you want to talk around other stuff or like you know terence stamp i thought it was interesting that he was a bit more forthcoming talking about working in italy like talk to him at length about making Toby Dammit with Fellini or making Theorem with Pasolini or making The Collector in Hollywood with William Wyler or working with Peter Yusnoff on Billy Budd, mm. but less, less 60s Soho stories. And I, I also started to wonder if you're actually what people perceive to be the epicenter of the scene, can you even see it yourself objectively? Like Diana, if you asked her about the 60s, she'd have a kind of line where she says, oh, I don't remember the 60s. I was filming the Avengers. <laughs> and I think that's not what she really felt, but it was like her way of kind of brushing off that question of like, what was it like to be a 60s icon? Because it's, it's sort of a dumb question to ask a 60s icon. So I think with all of that in mind, and then, you know, like Rita Tushingham, on the other hand, she she would talk about like how tough it would be or rather you know, the, 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 the sense is that the sixties were super progressive. And of course there were elements where they were, where, you know, things were changing rapidly, but that didn't mean it was happening to the whole of the country. It didn't even mean it was happening to the whole of London. Like the experiences of the stones and the Beatles in the ad lib club in 1965 and 1966 is, is not the experiences of the majority of the nation. And in fact, when you look at that archive material um, of the time, when you actually look at documentaries from the time, there's that thing when you see what most guys look like, they, everybody looks middle-aged, even people in their twenties <laughs> look like they're 40. I mean, I don't know if you noticed that in the nightclub scenes, but there's one of my favorite shots in the movie and it's kind of a disturbing shot is where Thomas and Mackenzie is sitting in this strip club and she's surrounded by men in suits, like kind of like the Mac Brigade, essentially. But there's that thing when you look at footage of the time is that you didn't have the thing, like unless you were a pop star, you didn't dress young. Like you wore a suit because you went to work and everybody looks like there's the middle age. Like, so the idea that, you know, that people like ourselves, Alex, who kind of dress like we're in our 20s, well into our 40s. <laughs> It's so you know what I'm talking about, oh, yeah, Alex. I got it. Oh, yeah. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, but that's something that didn't exist back then, unless you were a pop star or you were kind of maybe like in the scene. For the majority of people, like working like nine to five jobs, or especially outside of London, you know, people look really straight. And and so that's something that I thought was just interesting is that it's almost like the 60s is only happening to like the top 1% mm. of the, of the nation and everybody else is it's, it's a little more drab than that. So, and that's something that even within Soho itself is like, there are the places where it's all happening. And this is kind of like the center of swing in London. And then, you know, only like a door away, <laughs> it kind of gets grottier and drearier. And I, I think that's the thing with like the sort of the thing about, Soho itself is like the darkness is only just beyond those glittering lights. Mm. It's so close. And I think that's the thing where, where it is compelling and disturbing. I mean, it's an amazing film. And I guess with the pandemic happening, well, how has that changed your plans for what you're doing next? Because I remember, I think the last time we spoke um, in person at the Esquire townhouse Q and a, I think you were just about to start editing uh, last night and so or you uh, you were in the process of it baby driver two 
was uh, being talked about at that point? Is 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 that something that's happening, or is have I guess the pieces moved? Well, I think the thing is, I mean, I guess the pandemic knocked all of the pieces off the board in a way, and so. I think the big thing that's changed is, I mean, the the reality, the the honest answer is, I don't quite know what I'm doing. I've been promoting like two movies this year, and it's probably the most press I've ever done for for films, just because I've done them back to back. But also, I've really been trying to support the cinema experience, mm. and just kind of I feel very passionately about that, and want to help exhibitors as much as I can by just showing up, and not just like promoting the movie, but being at screenings and just kind of like not asking anybody to do what I wouldn't do, you know, and, and that, and that sometimes goes for like, you know, doing Q and A's with other filmmakers for their movies. But, um, you know, like I, I have a lot of great things in development, including baby driver too. And I, I think what the pandemic did was just kind of, um, force you to kind of like think about the future in more practical terms mm. in the sense of like, I, I basically, you know, just relocated to London during the lockdown I'm glad I did actually. I'm glad I I saw out the lockdown in London. And even though it was a very sort of sad time for the city, it did sort of weirdly made me fall in love with it all over again. <laughs> so I don't really know what's next and I don't know where it will be. I mean, there are certain things with something like Baby Drive, which is a very ambitious film to do, that trying to shoot that in the current lockdown situation would be quite challenging. Mm. It's a difficult thing to kind of, I know from people, I mean, I did some shooting right at the start of, in, in like August last year, we, we were one of the first films to start shooting again. And there was a point at Pinewood Studios where the only two, two films filming in the whole of the UK were Jurassic World and Last Night in Soho. Yeah. <laughs> and it was at the time when nobody really knew what COVID protocol was going to be. So we were one of the first films to sort of do it and say, hey, can we get through a week of filming and get everybody tested and how's it going to work? And we were lucky in a way that we were at the start because everybody was being very cautious and nothing was open as well. And I think sort of like, as soon as the football started like this year, everything kind of went to shit. And I know lots of people have been shooting movies that that's when people started to have these 10 day lockdowns where Hmm. so-and-so has COVID and the entire production is shut down. And some of these big movies, like having these multiple shutdowns costing like millions of dollars a week, every time it happened. And I know people who've been shooting now that have sort of said it's actually tougher now than it was at the start of lockdown, if that makes sense. So the honest, so the short answer is I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) But as soon as I, as soon as this film comes out and last night and so I was, has left the house, so to speak, I, and I get to kind of sit down with a clean desk and, and, and one of the projects I have in development will, will make itself, more apparent to me as as the practical next move than the others it's so good that this film has come out in cinemas uh, not just for cinemas but because it is the kind of movie i mean it's just it's like this delirious beautiful fever dream of a film and it needs to be seen on the big screen there were never were there ever murmurs during the the middle of it sort of whispers in the dark going we may have to take this to streaming no, I got to say, like, Universal and Focus, you know, who made the movie, n- I never had that conversation. And they always, I think they they all believed as well that it was something that was a theatrical experience. And I think in a strange way, actually, as has been borne out by the films that have been doing well, is that 
genre films are one of the things that kept people coming back because I think there's a sort of an understanding with audiences that films like, you know, like A Quiet Place was the first film back that was like a big hit. And I think that's because everybody just understood this would be better to see on the big screen with other people. Um, and I think what's tougher is that there are certain films where people haven't made the people have sort of made a decision in their heads to say, I'll wait for to watch that at home. And I hope that changes because I think it's toughest on like indie films um, at the moment, because, you know, there are films that come out during award seasons that are maybe more challenging that require you to be in a cinema and have committed to watching it, even to the point where you've paid your ticket. Mm. And I, I feel it's tough sometimes with some films that when they're at home and people are watching them on streaming, streaming and they haven't physically paid for that movie, mm. it's just one of many things on offer, that if it's something that requires your patience, I, 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 I think you'd be shocked to find how many of those movies people don't actually sit through at all. Mm. And that's a worry because I think whilst it's great that streamers like finance some of those movies, I wonder how, what percentage of the audience make it through to the end credits. Whereas if you watch it at the cinema, you know, it would be a, it would have to be something major for you to walk out and not, see it through to the end 100 it's the, I think at home people don't always have that patience yeah it's the immersiveness i mean you know there yeah. are films like uh roma for example or recently more recently nomadland films that require you to be immersed in the world of the film to really appreciate the intentions of the filmmakers and i think I, you have to be in the dark you have to be immersed in the world whereas if you're at home you can see the freaking washing up at the other side of the room or something. You've got your screen in the wrong place, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, I, I, uh, I totally agree. And I think actually Roma, I was very fortunate. I think when that came out, I saw it at the cinema like three times. Um, but I've never watched it at home. And it's not something that I really feel the urge to, even though I got a nice kind of setup at home and stuff. But yeah, I, I always feel it's like, and by the way, I'm not like, I know people get kind of funny about it in terms of that you're somehow being privileged just the idea of the cinema itself. I've watched hundreds of films at home in the last 18 months, literally hundreds, maybe like 500 plus. But at the cinema, the difference is, is that the film is in control. I always see it as like, the film is like a train leaving the station and you have to be there on time to get on the train, to go on a journey with the movie. And the, and the film is not stopping. So even if you have to go to the bathroom, like the film is going to carry on. And I think it's just something it's kind of, it's, it's, it's literally more transportative when the film is in control than when you are in control of the film at home. Because then it's that thing where if you're watching like a two and a half hour movie at home, you might say, hey, let's watch the rest of this tomorrow. Yeah. Or, you know, like, oh, I'm tired. We'll watch, you know, like it just, you know, the spell is broken more easily. So, and I think it's a sad thing sometimes for like um, films that, like last year, I felt for a lot of the films that were in award season that they hadn't really been hits with the public. Mm. As in, there were films, I think, something like Promising Young Woman, which in the UK went straight to Sky. I think that would have been an audience hit mm. if it had been in non-pandemic times. It would have been like a big, fat hit with audiences. And I feel sorry in a way that that film didn't see those crowds. Yeah, 
no, I see what you mean. And I think it was uh, because I think a lot of the studios held back their, their sort of big name prestige movies as well. What you ended up with during award season was a, a lot of smaller movies. And I think some of those smaller movies would have perhaps benefited being in categories alongside bigger movies with recognizable names in the people who go, oh, this is up there with, I don't know, I think they, they held back King Richard, the, 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 um, uh, the Serena and uh, Venus Williams story. If, if perhaps that had been sitting alongside, uh, you know, Minari, people would have gone, oh, OK, I'm going to check out Minari. No, totally. I think the problem and it's 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 a it's a tough one to crack the problem. Yeah. Like for the Oscars and the BAFTAs, what's tough is if there are smaller films that awards voters have seen and critics have seen, but the public has not. Sometimes the films haven't even come out. So what you have then, if there's a lot of films that the public don't know, and they're only going on the fact that critics have seen them and awards voters have seen them, it becomes a disconnect because the viewer at home is watching the award show or rather not watching it at all. <laughs> they, I, don't know, I don't know any of these movies. Sometimes they haven't come out yet. And that's, that's not a fault of the films themselves, but you're right in a sort of, in a previous years, almost like the perfect thing for award season is you have some big meaty blockbusters that people have heard of to hold, if not hold the other films up, but you might be, if you're invested in is black Panther going to win something or is once upon a time in Hollywood going to win something or is 1917 going to win something. They might watch the show and see a clip from Minari and saying, Hey, that looks interesting. We should watch that film as well. And the problem is, is like last year that didn't happen. And maybe this year it might be a similar thing. So it's, it's difficult because, and that's also a problem is that Hollywood have stopped making mid-range movies. Um, and those are the films. I mean, in a weird way, that's what I'm dedicated myself to <laughs> making those movies. It's like, we need more of these like mid-budget movies. Like Baby Driver is one of those. And so is Last Night in Soho. It's like something that's like, it's not like a $200 million film, but it's also, it's not a tiny indie either. It's that's something like they used to make. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's become it's become so polarized. It's it's one or the other. But you're right. All those movies that were original ideas, but still had enough budget to deliver some bang for the buck, uh, but wasn't part of a franchise. They like you say, they're uh, they're few and far between. Um, Edgar, um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I don't want to over sentimentalize at this, but you know, I remember being there with you in 2004 at the Shaun of the Dead premiere, and here I am talking to you in. 2021 with last night in soho and it's been a pleasure being part of that journey with you man oh thank you man i appreciate and, and in fact that that after party for sean of the dead was in soho as well as i remember <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was at the atlantic which now no longer exists and <laughs> um, you have a great rest of your day man and once again congratulations with the film it's fantastic oh thank you alex it really means a lot to me and uh, hopefully i hope everybody enjoys the film um and it will stop haunting me at some point <laughs> I'll see you soon, I hope, mate. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more.